But we're going to jump right into chapter 9, where it says, Therefore, let us be obedient to his magnificent and glorious will, and presenting ourselves as suppliants of his mercy and goodness, let us fall down before him and return to his compassions, laying aside the fruitless toil and strife and jealousy that leads to death. What is he talking about? Well, he's, he's saying, he's, he's given us some examples from the scripture, some exa- and then he taught us about repentance, and how, re- you remember he taught us about how repentance is in every generation, in every generation Hashem offers repentance to people, and he says, so we should repent too, and let's uh, repent by not uh, being involved in this schism that's going on in Corinth, this uh, revolt against the eldership, against the leaders of the Corinthian congregation. That's what he refers to he- here as uh, fruitless toil and the strife and jealousy that leads to death. And you remember he made a whole teaching, we learned a whole teaching about jealousy, this word jealousy, that uh, zealous uh, in, in the Greek which is really zealotry, uh, or uh, could be the equivalent of baseless hatred. As it says in the Talmud, why was this second temple destroyed? Despite the fact that the people were very righteous, they had, because baseless hatred prevailed. And the zealot party, no, no one better illustrates that than the zealot party themselves, who named themselves after this word of zealotry. Now, we find this impetus towards zealotry in Judaism comes from the story of Pinchas the Zealot, right? Pinchas, who rises up as he, and uh, takes a spear and he kills Zimri and Cosby with his spear, you know, outside of any sort of jurisprudence. And Hashem praises him for it because he saved uh, Israel. Uh, he stopped a plague at the time. But, so this became sort of a, a good, bad example of religious zeal, and that's what we're talking about here, religious zeal. You know, there's really very few things you can think of that are uglier than religious zeal when religious people turn on each other, you know, on on basis of religion. You know, it's it's very, it's it's nasty. It's a nasty, nasty thing. It gives religion a bad name. It sometimes makes you think, I'd rather not be religious. I'd rather be secular. But then, you know what, secular people do the same thing, only they call it politics, right? You know, or they, they find something else to do, something else to hate each other about. That's what he's saying. Let's not have anything to do with that kind of hatred, that kind of uh, zealotry and hatred. Instead, he says, let us fix our eyes on those who perfectly served his magnificent glory. Let us take, and now here's what's going to happen. We're going to start just rattling through biblical examples. Okay, uh, very much in the same fashion as Hebrews chapter 11. Remember my theory that Clement is the author of Hebrews. If he's not the author of Hebrews, he's highly influenced by the epistle of Hebrews because that's basically what he's going to do now is start doing a run through biblical characters. So he says, he starts with Enoch. He says, uh, let us fix our eyes on those who perfectly served his magnificent glory. Let us take Enoch, for example who was found righteous in obedience, and so was taken up and did not experience death. Now, that's quite a bit more than it says in in the Torah, you know, the verses in the Torah. I'm sure you're all familiar with the Enoch material. Everybody knows the story of Enoch from the Torah, right? Okay, so I don't have to tell you that. And you're familiar with the Enoch material in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11. It corresponds very closely with what we see here. even uses the same Greek word, meditithemi, I love that word. I like to say it. Would you like to try? Meditithemi. Meditithemi means to be taken up. 
So, you know, when Elijah was taken up, for example, it was a meditithemi. It means to be taken up to heaven. And it's something like when, when Paul is caught up, he says, I don't know if that was literally, if, I've, if it physically happened or if it was just a vision, but he, you know, had a meditithemi of some sort, maybe just a spiritual meditithemi. Someone who has a meditithemi gets to go to heaven in the flesh and get a little tour like John in the book of Revelation, right? Usually you get a little tour. Ordinarily, there's an angelic guide who's your tour guide, shows you around a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we call this, we call this uh, apocalypse. That's called an apocalypse. The metatithemy gives rise to apocalyptic literature. So this Rosh Hashanah, I'm going to lead some classes called Introduction to the Book of Revelation. So that's Enoch. Let us take Enoch, for example, who was found righteous in obedience and so was taken up and did not experience death. Do we have anything else to say about Enoch? Oh yeah, what's, what's up with Enoch? Why is he such a big character uh, to the apostles? And the answer is that the apostles believed, well, I don't know if the apostles, let's not say the apostles, but let's say the apostolic communities believed that Elijah and Enoch did not die when they were taken up, but that they are being kept alive supernaturally in heaven. I don't know how, but they're being, you know, Elijah pops in, pops out, pops in, pops out, all through Jewish lore, folklore. And so they're being kept alive. Enoch, he's not popping in and popping out. Instead, according to the book of First Enoch, which the apostles accepted as canonical, they accepted First Enoch as, as a legitimate book. According to First Enoch, he's there. He's, in, he's serving in the heavenly courts above. And this apostolic teaching, or apostolic era teaching, uh, had it that Enoch and Elijah will return at the end to fight the Antichrist. The two witnesses. Mm-hmm. The two witnesses. Well, Tybee and I have discussed this before, whether it's Enoch and Elijah or Moses and Elijah. In the book- I have heard and looked at some other things that Enoch was not Jewish. So he probably was. Right. So we think it, we we think in Revelation you've got Moses and Elijah, like at the Transfiguration there. But another strand of the legend has it that it's Enoch and Elijah, and you can find that strand of legend in the apocryphal book called Apocalypse of Elijah. Apocalypse of Elijah. Very interesting stuff. It's also uh, the church fathers knew it well. They knew this legend well, and they they reported it. So that's why Enoch is so important. Well, not only that, but anyone who has a metatithemy is important to the apostles because of the ascension of Yeshua. Yeshua had a metatithemy. He was taken up in the flesh, physically, in his physical human body. He didn't become all disembodied at the time of the ascension or something like that. But rather, his physical human body, resurrected albeit, uh, experienced metatithemy, just like Enoch and Elijah. And that's why these characters are so fascinating to believers. Oh, so much to cover, so much to say. Isn't it exciting? It's like having a window. It's like we're, pe- we're peeking right in the apostolic world. It's so great. Noah, being found faithful, proclaimed a second birth to the world by his ministry. And through him, the master saved the living creatures that entered into the ark. All right, so we learned about Noah last week and spent quite a bit of time going over the Noah material in the Apostles and in in Jewish. I put it back on your sheet anyway. But there's a Midrash regarding Noah. In the Midrash Rabbah, it says this, and this is something that gets quoted all the time regarding Noah. Noah saw 
a new world. And the idea is that the flood represents a transition from, not, not literally, you understand, but symbolically represents a transition from this world to the world to come. Uh, because here you've got the earth is wicked, judgment falls, judgment of God falls, boom, on the other side of it, it's a whole new world, right? Because it's all been flooded. And, uh, and guess what? Only the righteous are alive. You know, only the righteous are there. You know, that doesn't last real long. But, you know, when the flood lands, Noah, or I mean, when, when the ark lands, Noah saw a new world. The Hasidic uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe teaches that the animals living in peace, that as we see here, he saved the living creatures and they entered the ark in harmony. Clement points out in harmony. Uh, what's the point here? Uh, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, well, the harmony, and he's not commenting on Clement, he's commenting on the Torah. He says, the harmony is a symbol of the kingdom. What do we know about the kingdom? The lion and the lamb, the wolf and the lamb, the, you know, the bear and the ox and, and this sort of thing. So all the, the animals living together peaceably in harmony symbolize the kingdom of heaven. All right. So I think that's why Clement uses this particular turn of phrase. Uh, through him, the Lord saved the living creatures that entered into the ark in harmony. All right. Abraham, pressing on. Abraham. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what? I'm going so fast because I'm so wound up. Uh, What's well, exciting day? It's Rosh Chodesh Elul, you know? It's um, the first day of, the, of Elul. It's um, time to start repenting and... Uh, and I'm starving to death. I had, not supposed to fast on a holy day. It was an accident. <laughs> I was so busy. Anyway, um, yeah. So uh, don't worry. There's another Rosh Chodesh tomorrow. It's a double. It's a double header. Well, I'll eat plenty tomorrow. Abraham was called the friend. Abraham, who was called the friend, was found faithful in that he became obedient to the words of God. A couple things here. First of all, this title, the friend, it appears in Second Chronicles 20, uh, Isaiah 41, and famously in James 2. You know the argument in James. Uh, James is saying, oh, you think you justified by your faith alone and not also by your works? Well, let me tell you about Abraham, who was called the friend of God, who was justified because of what he did. So this is James' argument regarding Abraham, right? Here we see Clemens following the same line of thought. He's almost certainly has James, the epistle of James. So he says, Abraham, who is called the friend, was found faithful in that he became obedient to the words of God. He sides with James on this discussion. He obediently went, oh, the friend. Well, let's talk about the significance of that title, the friend. What is that supposed to mean? Why is he called the friend? Well, this, as it appears in First Chronicles and in Isaiah, the friend, Abraham as the friend of God, indicates that he's God's covenant partner. He's the one that God made this covenant with, and he acts in accordance with the covenant. And this gives you the background you know, for example, I, here, here's a verse um, in Genesis, somewhere in the Torah. I think it's in, yeah, it's in, it's in, it's in uh, 18, Genesis 18, where Hashem says to himself, seeing as, uh, you know, I've appointed Abraham for all this, shouldn't I tell him what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? God shares his plans 
with Abraham. That gives you the background then, if you look on your sheet for John 15, 15, where our master says to his disciples at his last Seder, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I made known to you. Abraham was found obedient. He obediently went forth from his country, from his people, from his father's house, leaving a small country, a weak people, an insignificant house, in order that he might inherit the promises of God. All right, this comes across wrong, I think, because it makes it sound like Clement's dissing on Terah, Abraham's father, and, and, and uh, the, the house of, of, uh, of Terah and Eber and all that sort of thing. His point is not that it was a small country. Okay, first of all, it wasn't a small country. Mesopotamia, you know, it's like the population center of the ancient world, you know, rivaled only by Egypt. A weak people? They're not a weak people. They're the Mesopotamians, <laughs> like the, the cradle of civilization, right? You can think of the Sumerians. You can think of the Assyrians. Uh, you can think of the Babylonians. You can think of the Persians, you know? Leaving behind a small country, not a small country, a weak people, not a weak people, and an insignificant house. It's not an insignificant house. It has a genealogy that comes straight down, you know, right through, you know, Noah, Shem, and, you know, it's the Semite line. So what's he saying? In order that he might inherit the promises of God. And now he's going to quote a bunch of these promises Go forth from your country, from your people, from your father's house, which is what he just listed. Country, people, father's house. To the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be blessed. And I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed. I'll make you a universal blessing to all of humanity. Again, lift up your eyes, uh, look around, take a look at this. Uh, as far as you can see, to the north, the south, the sunrise, the sea, uh, all of this will be your land for your seed forevermore. And, and then this promise, look up to the heaven, count the stars. So you have these famous Abrahamic passages, right? So this explains what Clement is getting at here. It's very much like when Paul runs through that list in Philippians. He says, hey, you think you have something to boast about? I have something to boast about. I, you know, I'm, I'm a Jew. Not only am I a Jew, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day, speak Hebrew, uh, tra trained in uh, rabbinic teaching, on and on and on. And then he goes, but I count it all rubbish. Is it all rubbish? No, it's not all rubbish. But when compared with the surpassing greatness of Messiah, of what he has attained in Messiah. It's like rubbish. So the point is not that he's, he's like, that's all junk. <laughs> that's all junk. I just, you know, I can't believe you. I, that's all junk. The point is, that's all great. Look how phenomenal. Look how, how great this is. And it's like nothing compared with Messiah. And so this is what Clement's doing. Only he's doing it a little back, uh, doing it backwards, saying, Hey, Abraham comes from a small country, a weak people, an insignificant family. When compared with what Hashem was offering Abraham, because Abraham had the faith to see, you know, what, you know, how great God was and what God was offering. It made, it made his huge nation, his powerful people and his royal family line seem like nothing. 
he counted them as rubbish when compared with the surpassing greatness. Does that make sense? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. We know that quotation. Paul uses that a lot. But listen to what Clement says now. He says, because of his faith and hospitality, a son was given to him in his old age. Now, this is innovative. We don't know that just from reading the Torah, that because of his faith and hospitality, a son was given to him. We have a lot of those because statements. Because you have done this thing, have not withheld your son, I will surely bless you and make you a great nation. And those, So in more than one place, Hashem affirms that he will keep his covenant with Abraham and his promises to Abraham because of Abraham's obedience. But here, Clement adds his own because. He says, because of his faith, you know, which was reckoned to him as righteousness, and his hospitality. What? Now, Abraham, we know in Judaism, Abraham is the father of hospitality. He's not just the father of the Jewish people. He's the father of hosting. He's the host with the most, right? Because Jewish tradition always has, like, whenever you talk about Abraham, you're talking about hospitality, right? All, and we could talk Abraham stories and hospitality stories all night. All derived from one text, Genesis 18. Abraham lifts up his eyes, sees three men in the distance, and he goes and he says, you know, don't pass your servant by. Now that you've come this way, sit down under the tree and let me bring a little water and we'll give you a little something to eat. And you know the story. It's Genesis 18. Clement says, yeah, yeah, he runs and then he runs. Slaughter the fattened calf. Quick, Sarah, need three sayers of flour. You know, that sort of thing. Yes, yes, exactly. That's right. And so that's what Clement is working with here. And he, he does this big show of hospitality. And, and, and he doesn't know, he does not know that these are angels. We, in fact, in the book of Hebrews, when mentioning this, it says that some have entertained angels unaware. Right? So he doesn't know they're angels. He thinks they're just three random travelers. So Clement says it's because of this great mitzvah of hospitality that he showed these three travelers that he merited to receive the message from Hashem. Where's your wife, Sarah? Uh, A year from now, uh, at the appointed time, a year from now, I will return to you and she will have a son. That's the story. And you think about it. It's like, you know, those guys actually were not on their way to see Abraham. They were passing by on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were on their way to see Lot. And so Abraham pulls them aside, gives them this hospitality. And then the angel of the Lord gives this blessing to Abraham and speaks this blessing to him. This beautiful teaching from Clement, I believe, goes back to the master. I think this is our master's own teaching on the Torah. I think most of this stuff is, actually. This one I can hook up with a saying of the master, where he says, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he's talking about hospitality. This is a passage about hospitality. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And we could, I could spend more time with that, with you, and, and kind of develop that out and show you what he's saying there and how it connects here. But the idea is that when you host someone, if it's a, you know, a righteous man or a prophet, they have the authority to bless you. And he says to his disciples, Whatever, whenever you enter a town or village, seek out some worthy person and stay at his house. As you enter that house, 
let your peace rest upon it. If the house is worthy, let your peace remain on it. If it's not, take your peace with you when you go. Another story, Prophet uh, Elisha is being hosted by the Shunammite woman. He says to Gehazi, what can we do for her? Gehazi's like, well, she has no son. No, he says, he says, do you want a word? Should I put in a word with the king or something like that? She has no son. See this pattern of a prophet, a righteous man. Chapter 11, Lot. Because of hospitality and godliness, Lot was saved from Sodom. When the entire region was judged by fire and brimstone. Lot really does show hospitality. He shows the same hospitality that Abraham did. Uh, you don't get the impression from the biblical text necessarily that Lot was very godly, you know. Instead, he seems kind of like... I think of Lot as like the typical secular believer, you know. He, yeah, he had a godly father. Well, not his father, his uncle. But, uh, you know, he... Lot's, right, he's a generation removed, right? He's the next yeah. generation, so... He's still running on fumes. He's running on fumes, but he's not raising a godly family. Yeah, he's worldly. Yeah, that's how I see him. But the apostles say, no, 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 no. Don't say that about Lot. Instead. Yeah, by comparison. I'm with you. No, that's how I see it. But the apostles, you know, there's, it's funny because sometimes there's reversals and you have to go with the apostles. Like Balaam seems like a pretty decent guy in the Torah. But the apostles are like, oh, 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 Balaam. You know, Balaam is the worst. Lot seems like he's, eh. But the apostles, what do the apostles say? Uh, in, yeah, his righteous soul, the man's... This is the teaching of Peter, too, who was Clement's teacher. Peter is saying, Lot's righteous soul was tormented as he was living there in the midst of that immoral place. That's in, It's on your sheet, 1 Peter 2, 7-10. I've always wondered about that. Right. Well, it's, a, it's, it's the way the apostles read it. Now, let's think about why. You realize Lot is an ancestor of the Master. Yeah, through Ruth. And so, see those books up there, Yalkut Mashiach? The red ones underneath the Zohar? Uh, Aaron and I have been going through those Parsha by Parsha uh, just to look. They're all about Messiah in the Torah portion. Every one of those is just one Parsha of the Torah portion. And every one of them is just jammed with rabbinic teachings about Messiah in relation to that Torah portion. You get to this Parsha about Lot, it's all about Lot and his daughters and the the birth of the line of Messiah through Ruth. Yeah, fabulous. In this way, the, the Lord clearly demonstrated that he does not forsake those who hope in him, but, de- but destines to punish and torment those who turn aside. And that this is exactly uh, a good paraphrase of uh, of First Peter two seven to ten, uh, where Peter says, "Look, the Lord shows that He knows how to rescue the godly. Of this, His wife was destined to be a sign of those who turn aside. She's a sign of those who turn aside. How so? Well, you know the story. All right, she gets turned into a pillar of salt." Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I mean, that's if you grew up in Sunday school, I mean, you just kind of like accept that as like, well, of course, she turned into a pillar of salt. Well, you know, she turned into a pillar of salt. But I mean, think about that. That's crazy. That's like that tiger who went around the tree until he turned into butter, you know? 
It's like, what? Yeah. And the moon's made of cheese. What, people don't just turn into pillars of salt. You know? But Lot's wife did. She, she turned back. She turned it. She looked, she turned, she wasn't supposed to turn around and look at the destruction. What, and what a strange story. It's like, why is this, you know, the angels say, don't look back, because if you do, you'll turn into a pillar of salt. They didn't even tell what would happen. You know, they're just like, don't look back. Oh, we told you not to look right. back. <laughs> don't you think she kind of wanted to stay there? Well, that's, see, now, that's an embellishment. You're, em, you're embellishing the story. But that's exactly what Clement says. Now, listen to this. This teaching, I believe this comes from the Master, by the way. Uh, this is, these, uh, this is the, I believe this is the Torah teaching of Yeshua that has been transmitted through the Apostle Peter and through the Apostle Peter to his disciple Clement. So here's, here it is. Here's what he says. His wife was destined to be a sign, for after leaving with him, she changed her mind and no longer agreed. And as a result, she became a pillar of salt to this day. That it may be known that all who are double-minded and those who question the power of God all fall under judgment and become a warning to all generations. Yeah, there's a covenant of salt and that yeah. sort of thing, but no, that's not what's in view here. Uh, except maybe the permanence of it. Right. Salt, is, salt is a preservative, it's a permanent thing. So she see that she's a, she's a pillar of salt to all generations, permanently. And you can go still see her today. I mean, what Clement's referring to here is the Dead Sea is dead primarily because it sits right on a huge, huge salt deposit, a mountain made of salt. There's a this salt cliff that shears off when it comes tumbling down. So there's a big, there's a big uh, monolith type of separation that has a tradition of being associated with Lot's wife, a big pillar of salt that is... Lot's wife down by the Dead Sea. So that's what he's referring to there. But I told you, I believe this is the teaching of Yeshua. And here's why that's not, I'm not just making, I have some basis for saying that. Luke 17, 32 to 33, Yeshua says to his disciples, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. So we see that the idea of Lot's wife and hanging on to faith and discipleship was part of the teaching that Yeshua transmitted to his disciples. This passage comes in the context of don't go back into your house to get anything. But yes, I think that's, I think that's all along the same. The, the story would, he would use the story to illustrate the call of discipleship and how it's like you can't be double-minded in this call of discipleship. It's like you put your hand to the plow and don't look back. You know, uh, a man comes and says, "Hey, I just I just want to go say goodbye to my parents." He's like, eh, "You know, too bad, you're out." Guy says, "I just need to bury my father." He's like, "Let someone else take care of that." Now, this is very strange, and I don't understand why we skipped to Rahab, and I didn't have enough time to think about it. So, but we're skipping from we're going it's. We're going from Abraham to Lot to Rahab. And there's several different ways we could look at these relationships. Abraham to Lot to Rahab. We could be looking at progenitors of the Messiah. Maybe we're looking just at Gentiles. Maybe right now we're just looking at Gentiles. I'm not sure what the relationship is. Or maybe we're just looking at hospitality stories. That seems to be actually closer. Mm-hmm.
Because even Sodom and Gomorrah was about hospitality. Oh, yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah is absolutely a story about hospitality. Because of her faith in hospitality, Rahab the harlot was saved. What? She was saved from the fall of Jericho, right? Oh, another place these characters are associated. James does this. In the epistle of James, he says, take Abraham, for example. Abraham was saved by what he did, not, by his, not just by what he believed. Rahab was saved by what she did, not by just uh, what she believed. That's, so James puts these two examples right next to each other. Clement is going to summarize the story. He summarizes the story of Rahab here. The spies were sent to Jericho by Joshua, the son of Nun. Uh, the king of the land realized they had come to spy. Uh, he sent men to capture them, intending to put them to death. Uh, the hospitable Rahab. She's hospitable. Of course she's hospitable. It's her job. She's a, she's a hospitality worker, <laughs> you could say. The hospitable Rahab, however, took them and hid them in an upstairs room under some flax stalks. Apostolic teaching is also, just like I said, they're fascinated with Enoch. They're fascinated with Lot, and they're not so much with Lot, but Lot and Ruth. We'll put them in the same. And they're fascinated with Rahab. Why? Why do we have Rahab being mentioned here in Hebrews, in James, and in Matthew? Because she is also in the line of the master. Rahab is one of the one of the progenitors of, of Yeshua. There's a lot of apparently they had a lot of teaching on Rahab. And Clement actually punches that up quite a bit. I compared this to the Septuagint because ordinarily Clement is quoting from the Septuagint, not this time. This time he's just telling the story. He's just sort of like telling it in his own words. She sends off the, the pursuers in another direction. And then she says to the two spies, I am absolutely convinced, and that's what I mean by punching it up. She says, I am absolutely convinced that the Lord your God is handing this country over to you for fear and terror have fallen on all the inhabitants. Therefore, when you do take it, save me and my father's house. So this is, Clement sees this as she's a prophet. She has a spirit of prophecy. And they said to her, it shall be exactly as you have said. Therefore, when you learn that we are coming, gather together all your family under your roof, and they will be saved. But anybody found outside your house will perish. Why is he telling us all this? He didn't go into this much detail with the other stories. And maybe this is the Torah teaching of our master. I don't know. Uh, but the teaching of, the apost- of these early apostolic communities were fascinated with that scarlet thread that was hanging out of Rahab's window. Well, I looked at this when I had to write on this, and um, it is fascinating. Because in Joshua 2.12, what she says when she says, give me a sign, she says, give me a sign of truth. Give me an oat emmet. And so already we'd be going, ooh, a sign of truth. What's the sign of truth? It's already suggesting some deeper meaning in the story. But it gets better. They say, use this chord. This cord, uh, and, and the word for cord uh, is tikvat, which means threaded together, but it's a homonym for hope. This cord of scarlet thread in the window is the, is the sign of truth. This hope of scarlet is the sign of truth. So this, is, this language in the Hebrew was suggestive to 
the apostles and to the, the early believers. And the story itself, everybody in her house will be saved and so on. Sounds like a metaphor for salvation. And so this is what we find. Clement says, in addition, they gave her a sign that she should hang from her house something scarlet, making it clear, and it's, it's hardly clear, <laughs> making it clear that through the blood of the Lord, redemption will come to all who believe and hope in God. Did you hear that? Not the thunder. The hope. The word hope. Uh, you see, dear friends, not only faith, but prophecy is found in this woman. One, one famous rabbi says that when the, the spies said this to Rahab, he says, the spies were hinting to Rahab, by joining, joining us, you have hope, the tikvat, again, you have hope of attaining the true everlasting life of the world to come. So look at that. Yeah. Same thing. Where did the rabbi get that one? Well, he get, he's getting it from the same, I think he's looking at the same words, the same buzzwords here. You and your family will be saved, a sign of truth, and the hope. Thus, the twine, the tikvat, symbolized Rahab's lifeline, her connection to Hashem's people, whose glorious future she would now share. And that's the Rahab story. This doesn't stop with Clement. We can also pull it out of second century guys. So I've got that on the back of your sheet. And I'll just give you a quick, a quick read through of these. And as the blood of the Passover upon the doorpost saved those in Egypt, so too the blood of Christ will deliver from death those who have believed. Through this sign, God announced the future salvation of humanity by the blood of Christ ahead of time. He's using the Passover blood as it's, he says, that foreshadows the blood of Christ. He says, okay, and also the spies sent to Jericho by Joshua, son of Nun, gave Rahab the prostitute the sign of, scarlet, of a scarlet cord. So isn't that interesting? He says, the scarlet cord is just like the blood of the Passover lamb. Just think, everybody inside the house that was marked by the blood was saved. Everybody inside the house that was marked by the scarlet cord was saved. They were told to tie it to the window through which he lowered them to escape from their enemies, symbolically illustrating the blood of Christ, by which those who were formerly prostitutes, like Rahab, and unrighteous men from all nations like Rahab, a Gentile from all nations, are being saved, receiving forgiveness for sins and continuing no longer in sin. This is, Justin didn't make this up. This is teaching that he, he knew from the broader community of faith. This is in the chain of transmission from the apostles. Rahab the prostitute condemned herself in that she was a Gentile guilty of all sins. Well, most of the sins. Nevertheless, she welcomed the two spies who were spying out all the land and hid them at her home. And at the time, the seven trumpets sounded and the entire city in which she lived collapsed into ruin. After everything was over, Rahab the prostitute was saved together with everyone in her house through faith in the scarlet sign, which symbolized the Passover and the redemption and the exodus of the people from Egypt. So we've got count them here. We've got three sources that we can cross-reference with each other, and we could put them together if we ever had the time. Uh, we could put them together and recreate an apostolic midrash that was you know, probably the teaching of Peter, the teaching of the apostles on this particular Bible story. You know, in Jewish tradition, 
Rahab converts and marries Joshua, like the Joshua, the Joshua and becomes a mother to a line of priests and prophets. So that's interesting. With Clement's statement, you, this woman, prophecy is found in this woman. However, in apostolic tradition, she marries Salmon, the son of Nakshon, and becomes the mother of the line of uh, Judah, through, through whom our master comes. So we have to go with the apostles. We don't get a vote in this, by the way. We go with the apostles. But it's just interesting that you have two competing traditions in this case. It's, it's pronounced Salmon, Salmon, like Salmon. But it looks like it's pronounced Salmon, which is why we always have Salmon for the Mishde Mashiach, the Messiah's meal. Because, well, no, not really. But I always thought we, it would be a good name to resurrect among believers. I think, you know, it'd be fun to name our boys uh, along those lines of names in the master's genealogy. And I'm sure Salmon would be a popular one. Because he could be Sam for short, right? 